Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. On this show, Rabbi Michael Siegel from Anshe Emet Synagogue in Chicago talks with author Jonathan I about the Parsha Bechukotai, a biblical perspective on free will and the blessings and curses that come from our own hand. Bechukotai. It is the final portion of the book of Leviticus, and it really deals with a topic that challenges us on a whole variety of levels. The topic is blessings and curses. If you follow my laws and faithfully observe my commandments, the portion begins, I will grant you rains in the season so that the earth shall yield its produce and the trees of the field their fruit. And it goes on to paint an idyllic picture of people who are at peace in the land where nature is uh, offering them all of its bounty, and then God will also be living in their midst. And then comes the dreaded word in the Bible, v'im lo tishma'uli, and if you don't listen to me. And here's the question of free will. Human beings from the very beginning are given free will, and here is the downside of free will. If we choose not to follow God's ways, if we to ignore Torah, what follows is a an ugly, terrifying picture of exile and people wandering through the world and being taken advantage of, basically a snapshot of Jewish history. So where do we begin? <laughs> where do we end? It's the uh, endless question that you know has been asked throughout history, not just Jewish history, but if there is a God, why does he do these terrible things? And um, I'm, I'm reading now, rereading one of my favorite writers, um, Isaac Bashevis Singer, uh, the book um, Enemies, a Love Story. And this is a question after the Holocaust that haunts the characters in this story. How can they go on being Jews after what they've lived through? They've been, they were lucky enough to survive. Some of them wish they had died because they don't know how to live anymore. The main character in this book is Herman Broder, who's a Torah scholar, who's ghostwriting for a rabbi who doesn't know how to, to write himself. So Broder is, is writing for this rabbi. He's a brilliant Torah scholar, but he doesn't believe anymore because he can't after what he's been through. So how do you reconcile your faith, your attempt at, at calling yourself a Jew when you've seen the worst of what God can allow to happen? And this question is as old as Judaism itself. The book of Job is dealing with the same question. Where are you, God? Why aren't you fulfilling your end of the covenant. It's one thing for us to speak about the national issues of the Jews of the past, but what the Torah is doing is it's placing the responsibility of our reward, our punishment, directly on our shoulders. And the challenge to the Jewish people, and I think the challenge to us today is this message because the Haredi community, which, which, by the way, was most affected during the Holocaust, right. they have a very clear explanation for why the Holocaust happened. It's right here in this chapter. You didn't fulfill the Torah. You didn't do what God told you to do. And we suffered the worst because we had the least effect on the Jewish people. We didn't save the Jewish people from itself. And so they take that responsibility. But for us, it's anathema. To think that we brought this on ourselves, that's the challenge of our age. Yeah, and you know, you can look at it in um, today's world and say we are less observant in general. We are, we are sinning again, so are we bringing on today's sins? Are we bringing on global warming? Is this God's way of telling us that we're blowing it, that we're not paying enough attention? So on the micro level, 
we can talk about the fate of the Jewish people during the Holocaust. On the macro level, we can look as citizens of the world and look at the world and what's happening to it ecologically and question whether or not we are bringing this fate upon ourselves. Those are the questions, and the relevance of this parasha is significant. Because when you have a conversation with people about God today, with Jews about God, inevitably the Holocaust comes up within the first three or four minutes. The God that you talk about, Rabbi, the God I'm supposed to worship, how, how much power does this God have in the world? How can you even believe in this God? How can you take this stuff seriously when you look at the history of the Holocaust? Or, by the way, the history of Rwanda, whose anniversary we are dealing with right about now. How do we understand that? How can there be a God in the world that doesn't come and save us? Does some of this stem, you think, from our tendency to want to personalize God, to make him or her an individual, and that individual is like a judge who can say thumbs up, thumbs down, you're punished, you're not punished? I think that's our desire. I I don't mean to become too psychologically focused here, but when you call God Avinu Malkinu, our father, our king, or we refer to God as Shechina, as the feminine divine presence, which speaks to us as a mother, right? Mm -hmm. You have this parental ideas. As children, we want God to save us from ourselves, right? We want our parents to jump in and make it better for us. And the Torah has these ideas, but only in a limited way, because at the end of the day, the Torah begins squarely with the story of the Garden of Eden. I'm giving you all of this. We live together in paradise. But if you go outside of our relationship, I'm going to cast you out. You have free will. That's what distinguishes you. And you have, you have to grow up and understand that your actions have consequences. And if you're going to be the steward of the world, then you have to accept that responsibility as well. And if the Jewish people are going to be my witnesses in the world, then you have to bear that responsibility more heavily than any other nation. And that's the challenge that we deal with. So, again, it gets back to me to this relationship with God. He's, Everything he's, comes back to you. Yes. Yeah, no, I mean, in, in my mind, I, I, in some ways, we still have the, I still have this childlike view of God, right? I still want that relationship where, where he's parental or she's parental and she or he is going to be there for when, I, when I screw up to save me. And I don't think it works that way. You know, it's interesting. You were talking about Singer before. And Singer represented a pre-Second World War view of the world. Jews were filled with Bundist rationalists. And Jews were struggling not only with their faith, but how Jews understood themselves as a people, right? And what responsibilities that we have. And if you looked at world Jewry, it was clearly moving away from a spiritual relationship with God and much, and was moving in a more rational way. In the post-war, Jews moved back to these questions because what happened? And we're scared and we want someone to come forward. Heschel rises up, Abraham Joshua Heschel, and becomes a major force in uh, Jewish thought and um, in Catholic and Christian thought as well. And one of the questions that he asks is this, what are you doing that would make God 
pay attention to you. You know, we assume that the parent who's ever interested in us, and God is interested, but are we living a life worthy of God's attention? Mm -hmm. If we continue to ignore God, then God's going to allow us to destroy ourselves. Are we living a life worthy of God's attention? And what kind of relationship does that create? And what meaning does that bring to my life? And what responsibilities does it bring along with it? That's the conundrum, I think, that we face. Yeah, and that's the outward view where I think we begin to... You look at Heschel's character. I mean, not Heschel's characters. You look at Singer's characters, and they're they're Freudian. They're self-absorbed. They're they're focused on on themselves and what they can do or what they did wrong. And then by the time you get to Heschel, you're looking at what we can do. It's more Sadaka, uh, creating a, a better world. Uh, Heschel on the front lines with um, the civil rights movement, uh, looking at at not just himself but what his life is dedicated to. I think that's right. And but Heschel was a person who reached the uh, universal from the particular. Right. He didn't start in the universal. He believed that what he was doing was a response to the call of God, the call of the prophets. Mm -hmm. And that intimate relationship with God informed his actions. We, on the other hand, I don't know uh, how seriously we take that relationship. And And what's so interesting about our Torah reading is it says... I'm going to live among you. And it's not just the physical sense that I'm going to live among you in the tabernacle or the temple, but I will establish my abode in your midst. And the abode is the Shekhinah, the divine presence. And Jews have lived with this idea of the divine presence. Can we maintain a real relationship with God where we can get angry at God and say, you weren't there, but then continue on. You weren't there in the way I needed you but still be in relationship? Or do we walk away? Yeah, and I think some of that has to do with how we imagine this relationship with this individual who some of, some of us like to conjure, this gray-bearded woman sitting on the cloud. Um, and, um, and how do we as adults reconcile with that, the fact that, that, um, that we need to take a more mature, holistic view of, of, of our relationship with God, that we, that we don't have to think of this as a person, as an individual? So on the one hand, we take responsibility. On the other hand, what kind of relationship do I actually want to have with God? What's actually possible? If it's the relationship with a God that I, see, I meet on the high holidays, that feels that I'm always being judged, I'm always beating my breast, I'm always saying how sinful I am. If I never meet the God who joins us on Shabbat and sings with us, the God or the God that we pray with when someone is ill who cares for us, the God that reminds us that we're never alone no matter what, and that doesn't mean that doesn't take away from our choices. We don't have that prism-like understanding of God where there are multiple facets, then yeah, we're going to walk away from that. right? Who needs that? Right. I'll endure the service and I'll listen to a sermon But people, I believe, are really looking. And the God of the Torah is the God that says, Ayeka, where are you in the Garden of Eden? This is a God that wants to be in relationship with us. And so our experience really needs to be more reflective of that. So we have to put into it what we want to get out of it. That's right. And by the way, that's actually happening. In Israel, there is a greater cry for and desire 
for spiritual life, right? Here in this country, that secular country that Ben-Gurion built, right, with so many others, he would be shocked to see the fact that Israelis are discovering their own forms of Judaism. There are actually secular yeshivas in Israel where they study Jewish texts, but they don't acknowledge God, but they study the text. There are other places where you can go on the beach in Tel Aviv on a Friday night and see hundreds of people bringing the Sabbath day in, in this wildly, wonderfully spiritual way. And so Jews are continuing to discover that wherever we go. And here in America, the core of the Jewish people is more engaged, more knowledgeable than at any time in American history. And that's something we should celebrate. That's the journey. Amen to that. Well, I guess we should end by acknowledging that Bukhukotai is, on the one hand, one of the more difficult portions to read, but also one of the most important. What do our blessings mean? How do we understand the curses? And how do we go forward? Those are the questions I think we need to ask ourselves. 